Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so honored to be talking with Dr. Melanie McAllister. She's the Professor of American Studies and International Affairs at George Washington University. And I think for our purposes, really, I'm very interested to talk about her book, which came out in 2018 called The Kingdom of God Has No Borders, A Global History of American Evangelicals. So welcome, Dr. McAllister, to MindShift Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. Yes, so I'm glad we finally got together. We had issues <laughs> scheduling for, for weeks, but this is finally happening. I'm really excited. Can I just call you Melanie? Is that okay? Of course, yes. Okay, yes. Yeah. So I read your article. This is why I reached out to you a few, I guess it was a couple of months ago now. You had an article in The Conversation talking about Putin and the evangelical support, especially in the context of the war in Ukraine, which is obviously still ongoing. And what was so interesting at the time was that I found you know, a lot of people were talking about the fact that American evangelicals almost seem to have more of an affinity with Vladimir Putin than Joe Biden, for sure. What can you tell us about this sort of evangelical support for Putin? Well, I have a lot to say about that, but I first want to start with the caveat that whenever we talk about American evangelicals, we're talking about a very large community of people. Um, depending on how you count, it could be as much as 25 to 30% of the U.S. population. So there's no one thing that American evangelicals think, and especially when you consider that many of those evangelicals are not white, they're people of color, as much as 25% of that community is people of color. Again, sort of depending on your definitions and how you count, Latinos, Asian Americans, African Americans, all mm-hmm. hold similar theologies and are part of that community in various ways. So the community that is most allied with Putin is an important subset of American evangelicals, which is a elite group of conservative white evangelicals who have long cultivated ties with Putin for um, a number of reasons, but the first and most straightforward one, honestly, is um, anti-LGBTQ politics. Mm-hmm. It's been quite open that Franklin Graham, the World Congress of Families, the James Dobson, a lot of the conservative groups um, are very enthusiastic about the ways in which Putin has put forward anti-LGBTQ legislation, uh, had legislation that prevented, quote, gay propaganda a few years ago, has been quite open in his um, notion of defending a a so-called traditional family. And that has been the source of a lot of alliances um, between uh, a certain group of Americans, particularly higher level leaders who see in him a kind of uh, lodestar. So, you know, Franklin Graham's gone over to visit him. There have been a number of conferences there. Um, And so, when that alliance has been struck, and there are other reasons for it that I'll come back to, but Mm -hmm. when that alliance has been struck, then people talk in their uh, sermons or in the media about Putin as a kind of friendly to Christians, as being a Christian friendly leader. And they don't necessarily say we like him because he's against gay people, but that's really part of the The drivers, the agenda. And the other piece of that is that there is a larger way in which Putin has positioned himself within the discourse, um, what I call the discourse of persecuted Christians. That is, there's been a lot of discussion in the last 20 or 30 years, specifically since the end of the Cold War, about Christians as being persecuted around the world, but particularly in places of Muslim uh, Christian conflict or tension. And Putin has declared himself to be a defender of Christians in certain kinds of space, including in the Middle East. He took stances in Syria that he posited were in favor of Christians. And because Americans and people in Europe have really taken up this idea of Christians as a persecuted community, then Putin um, begins to establish himself and, and talk about himself as the defender of Christians in that global context. And so he has that other kind of cachet as well. So when the the war happens between Russia and Ukraine, when Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, many American Christians, evangelical Christians, were put kind of off guard because they 
they recognized that Russia had invaded a country and it was complicated for them because there is a, a pretty a vibrant, if small, evangelical community in Ukraine that was speaking out with Christianity Today and talking about mm-hmm. their perspective. But um, that's why you saw um, this kind of initial, at least, really uncomfortableness on the part of uh, American evangelicals about how to take a stand. Now, later, people backed off and became more critical of Putin. But mm-hmm. at first, you know, he's been an ally on a couple of different things, and it may put people in a very bad position. It really did. And I, I picked up on a lot of that reading some of the posts by Franklin Graham and others on Facebook in different places. And you're exactly right. They had no idea what to do. It's like we support Putin in principle and in many other ways, as you say. But yet he was prosecuting an illegal war. And now more and more has come out. There's been war crimes committed, atrocities and, you know, things like that. So it's, it's you're not hearing much of that. But one of, you, one of the things you talk about in your article that brought a lot of this to light you say in, in February 2022, Franklin Graham, of course, the son of the famous Billy Graham, he calls on his followers to pray for Vladimir Putin. Graham asked the believers, quote, pray that God would work in his heart so the war could be avoided at all costs. He didn't solicit any prayers for Ukraine. He didn't he didn't ask for people to pray for Joe Biden. He's praying for asking people to pray for Putin. And that ended up, I guess, bringing a lot of backlash to Franklin Graham, didn't it? Yes, it did. And, you know, part of it, I think, is a little bit unfair in the sense that, you know, evangelicals often ask people to pray for leaders, uh, you know, without necessarily endorsing what they're doing. But it was the fact that he didn't, if he'd said pray for Putin and pray for Ukraine and play for Joe Biden, you know, had the prayer list, then he would have been fine. But he definitely, he clearly had in his mind that Putin was somebody who he wanted to do the right thing and believed he could somehow. Uh And so that sense of getting caught in longing for a certain kind of Putin (laughs) that he didn't get, um, get definitely got a lot of backlash for that. Mm. How much of it is related to Christian nationalism as well? Because of course, Putin, you know, you think, okay, or in the United States, Christian nationalism is a major driving force behind the desire to overturn Roe versus Wade, the anti-LGBTQ agenda by the Christian right and so forth. But here in, in Russia, here's Putin. He's a Christian nationalist too. He's in bed with the Russian Orthodox Church. And that's gotten a lot of attention too, hasn't it? That part of the love for Putin is his Christian nationalism, or at least that stance that he seems to take in terms of spreading that sort of gospel of Russian Orthodox Christianity. Well, isn't it ironic, though, right? I mean, 20 years ago, uh, American evangelicals didn't have much in the way of alliance with Orthodox Christianity. Um, mm-hmm. And 30 years ago, didn't have much in the way of alliance with Catholics 30 or 40 years ago. Um, and so one of the things we I note first is this emergence of what I call the ecumenical right wing, that is evangelicals in coalition with other kinds of Christian groups around conservative issues, both religious and political issues. This emerges probably first in the U.S. around abortion, but it's been expanded. And in part, again, not to be obsessed with the persecuted Christians thing, but as people have begun paying attention to Christians all over the world and the potential suffering of Christians and some real suffering of Christians, they they want to count all the Christians, right? Because if you want to say this many Christians are uh, being persecuted by Muslims or this many Christians are in danger of um, violence, then suddenly American evangelicals who used to be not sure that anybody but evangelicals was Christian are counting all the Orthodox and all the Catholics and all the Christians around the world. And so as this sense of a global Christian community, a more ecumenical sense of global Christian community begins to emerge, it emerges um, not just as a liberal sentiment of, you know, we accept everybody into the fold, but also as part of the heart of a conservative coalition um, who saw themselves as under threat by secularism, by uh, Muslims, by, you know, changing norms uh, globally, even by uh, particular ideas around lesbian and gay rights in particular, and began to see each other more as allies. So in that sense, what people often call Christian nationalism, I think is really a kind of internationalism. That is to say, it's a, it's a global coalition with people working together and supporting each other in all sorts of ways. And people might have nationalist ideas that our country should be a Christian country and we should you know, um, make the laws to support Christianity, but they believe it at, a, at an international scale. That you know, it's not enough just to have the United States be a Christian country. What we're talking about is 
making alliances with conservative Christians in Uganda when they're passing anti-gay legislation there or seeing Soviet Union as, I mean, seeing Russia as an ally in constructing a larger vision of the traditional family. So really, I think Christian nationalism is a little bit, it's, it's not that people aren't Christian nationalism, but it almost undersells the story. Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, internet Christian internationalism, maybe that's what we should be saying. Well, now take us back in time, because I can remember, okay, I was born in the mid-1960s. I grew up in the States during the Cold War. I can remember, as we all did, if we lived through that period, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, David Hasselhoff singing, you know, so the Soviet Union collapses, and they they were the bugbear during the time I was growing up as an evangelical. They did persecute Christians, and I can remember you talk about in your article people that smuggled Bibles into the Soviet Union. Brother Andrew, I can remember as a kid reading the comic books that were talking about Brother Andrew smuggling Bibles across into the Soviet Union. It was a, a miracle because the guards at the border couldn't see the Bibles, thousands of Bibles packed into his car and everything else and he, all this stuff. So th- they're, they're the, the enemy at that point. But now it all changed with the fall of the Soviet Union so how much of that is, it's all different now, isn't it, where they welcomed evangelical groups? Because I can remember one of the big things that came out after the collapse of the Soviet Union, as you say, they started letting Christian groups and churches and mission organizations into the former Soviet Union. And that was a massive sea change, wasn't it? Yeah, and there's been some really, people are doing some really interesting work, scholarship now about, you know, what happens when the Soviet Union opened up and the rush of both American and uh, other uh, evangelical organizations into the areas of the former Soviet Union, which, by the way, of course, includes Ukraine. So for a while, the two largest churches in Ukraine in the 1990s were both pastored by Nigerians, Mm. um, Nigerian uh, missionaries. And so, you know, it's a global rush into the the post-Cold War Eastern Europe and former Soviet bloc. Americans are there and others are there too, trying to, you know, create missionary, use missionary opportunities and create new believers. It wasn't that they were so hugely successful. I mean, there's been certainly the development of evangelical communities in the East and significant ones, but they're still a small minority. But it was that sense that this is an unprecedented missionary opportunity and people really uh, latched onto it. And then then when Putin came to power, he himself had very specific ideas about how um, Russian culture was going to be promoted over and against the history of the Soviet Union and that Russian culture would include this embrace of Orthodox Christianity. So that obviously the Soviet Union did a 180 and it changed the relationship and how Americans saw them, but seeing the Soviet Union as an area of missionary opportunity, seeing the former Soviet Union as an area of missionary opportunity is a little bit different than seeing the leader of Russia as a kind of leader of global Christianity, which is what has happened. That this guy who, you know, like Trump, his own Christianity is not that Mm -hmm. impressive, but who is positing himself and being seen as kind of a world figure for, for Christians, which is really quite remarkable. It really is. Like you say, having Trump as the, you know, Cyrus and all that. And I wonder too, how much of this does relate to when Trump was in office, that he was so subservient to Putin for the whole four years. He was basically doing his bidding as I saw it, but the evangelicals never seemed to speak out against that relationship and that, that issue that he was just like kind of Putin's puppet in a way, you know, do you think there's any overlap to that in terms of the evangelical connection? You know, I actually, I think it might be sort of two pseudo-independent connections being developed Uh there because Franklin Graham had planned to hold the World Congress or the World Summit on behalf of persecuted Christians in Russia in uh, 2015. I believe it was spring of 2015, right? So before Trump is elected. And then (laughs) Putin, again, Christian nationalism versus internationalism, that summer Putin releases a promulgates a law that doesn't allow evangelism outside of your home. So, you know, this is pretty important to evangelicals, the right to evangelize. And so when Putin stops allowing evangelicals to evangelize, um, then they have to cancel that summit and move it back to D.C. because, you know, it's, it's awkward. So 
Franklin Graham continues to have relationships with Putin because, again, of the, the areas in which they agree around queer um, politics in particular, as do other groups. I mean, it's not just Franklin Graham. It really is the World Congress of Families has been huge in making all sorts of links with the Russians and also have the American Family and Legal Defense Fund, I believe it's called, um, mm-hmm. Jay Sekulow and those folks who have yeah. had all sorts of alliances. Christian so, lawyers, yeah, the ADF yeah, yeah. and all those, yeah. Yeah. That's um, true. So um, it's much broader than than. Trump, and I think it actually precedes Trump. It certainly does. Yeah, it goes back a long time. Okay, so you talk about in your book, you say that American evangelicalism can't be understood aside from a global perspective. I think about going back, you know, we're not just harping on Franklin Graham, but he was recently here in the UK, and he was here a few years ago. He, he had a tour booked of several cities in the UK, and there was so much opposition to his anti-LGBTQ stance, he had to cancel his tour. I don't know if you remember that. But yes, he was, I I, apparently it was, he was able to pull off this last tour. He only was in about, I think, four cities, but he was near near me. He was in Liverpool just a few weeks back as we're doing this recording now. And there were people protesting and things. But, you know, outside the USA, who's who's a guy like Frank Graham? I mean, only know him because of Billy Graham. But yet you're saying that we have to understand in the larger context. Can you explain how we should Absolutely. see American evangelicalism in that global context? Yeah, I think this is... This is the fundamental argument of the book, which is that often people have talked about American evangelicals as if all their politics were domestic and most of them began, you know, only in the in the late 60s or early 70s with, the you know, sort of precursors to the moral majority. But actually, American evangelicals have had a lot of interest in international political issues across the 20th century, but particularly since the Second World War. They were very interested, for example, I'll give you one early example in decolonization. Now, why? Because decolonization is making all sorts of independent new countries in the 1960s and 1950s and into the early 70s, all sorts of new countries, particularly in Africa, you know, 20 new countries are founded in Africa in, in 1960. And in those places, the old missionary style of the imperial missionary, either from the US or from the actual imperial countries, is that's being thrown off. People are saying, we don't want empire and we don't want these old style missionaries and their you know condescending attitudes and so there's a lot of anti-missionary backlash in the decolonizing period especially i, I focus particularly on congo but it's in africa in general and what's happening in the united states in this period on the one hand american christians are ready to say hey we're not imperialists we can come in and be the new missionaries who aren't the old british or french empire people we're you know we're from a de- democratic country but there is this unfortunate problem of public racism all over the United States as the civil rights movement is heating up, as people are seeing people, you know, hosed in the streets, being yeah, treated dogs with all sorts of violence, yeah. Yeah, dogs after them. George Wallace, you know, talk, speaking viciously about African-Americans and others. And so they know that the United States is not looking very good. And so they get concerned about how the U.S. is going to appear in these decolonizing countries. They get concerned about racism, maybe not for the best of possible reasons in the sense that, you know, people are not necessarily thinking as much about racism down the street as they are thinking about how racism looks to people in Africa. But it becomes a major conversation point, how we need to deal with racism if we're gonna be successful at missionary work. At the Mm -hmm. same time, they're very worried. Like they don't, you know, if Congo becomes independent and these Congolese are in charge, like, are they ready? I'm not sure they're ready. And so there's a great, actually Billy Graham has this fascinating um, series of radio broadcast about Congolese independence. And he's saying, you know, they want to be free. They're not ready to be free, but they want to be free and we're not gonna be able to stop them. So we need to deal with this and hand, you know, figure out how to be on the right side and independence. And this is also when in Congo, by the way, in the early sixties, as they're becoming independent and going through a civil war, several American missionaries are killed and it becomes quite a major issue with particularly a doctor missionary named Paul Carlson, who is murdered um, in Stanleyville and become, you know, is on the cover of life and time and becomes mm-hmm. kind of symbol of the the violence and and transformations that decolonization is bringing about. And American evangelicals are talking about this all over, all of their news, all of their Bible studies, in the radio broadcast. And yet American historians for all these years have said, oh, American evangelicals, they're just so, you know, um, oriented towards 
their own home space. They don't really care about anything unless maybe missionary work where they don't think about any politics. Meanwhile, evangelicals are worried about decolonization. They're thinking about um, communism, of course, all over the place. They get interested in thinking about how the globalization of the faith, the, the move of the faith to the global South is gonna change their own power and the, and the nature of their religion. They're thinking about international issues in all sorts of ways. And of course, with the Soviet Union, hugely interested in the situation of Christians in the Soviet Union and the situation of communism globally and how that is affecting Christianity. There's, um, it's, it's everywhere. So it's telling everywhere. a domestic story, you miss a lot of what goes on. I went to Nairobi in 2001. We went to Kenya for three weeks back when I was an evangelical and it was a classic missions trip. You know, we raised money for it and we were going to build a church and we did, we built a church in a particular town. We spent the rest of the time around Nairobi in the slums and various places, you know, evangelizing and thousands came forward and the whole thing, we had it all filmed. You know, we came back and showed all these movies. But one of the things I learned was that when we were there talking to the people who, you know, from Kenya, they said, well, America is like the powerhouse. If you want to go get a Bible college degree or a seminary degree, you, you pretty much have to go to America. I mean, obviously you could go to Britain, but America has got, there's a seminary on every street corner. It seems like in America, you know, so that's got to be one of the driving forces, isn't it? People coming back this way because they're coming to the States to get a, a Bible college or a seminary degree, a higher, a higher education degree to then go back to Africa to be a pastor or, or a Bible college teacher. Yeah. I mean, that you're so right in the sense that there's a whole book to be written about Bible colleges and seminaries as, as internationalist spaces, I think, mm -hmm. um, and the ways in which something like Dallas Theological Seminary, which is a very conservative seminary in, in, in Texas, um, one of the places where a lot of apocalyptic thinking uh, was developed and how Lindsay went to Bible school mm. there. And, oh yeah. Um, the late and, great planet earth. Yeah. The late <laughs> I grew up on earth. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was everywhere, but that that's college was it, famous for giving great scholarships to students from all over the world and bringing them there, teaching them the kind of particular theology of Moody, which is premillennial dispensationalist, deeply conservative against women's ordination, all of that. And then many of those people, some of those people staying, but many of those people then going back and becoming teachers or preachers in their own countries. And in fact, you know, some becoming leaders of evangelical institutions like the Association of Evangelicals in Africa and Madagascar was led by a guy named Bang Cato, who was a who was a Dallas Theological Seminary graduate. And so there, there's there's this kind of dispersion everywhere. Uh, but there yeah. is also kind of interesting. There are actually, you know, lots of, not lots, but there are real important seminaries in Africa and Asia, increasingly so. And those places like Next in, in, in Nairobi, actually, which is a, a graduate school of theology that's called African International University, but the Next is the graduate school of theology at that university now, is a very important institution. And it, it recruits teachers and faculty from the U.S. and Europe, and then mm -hmm. also um, tries to get they don't have that many students coming in, but they do recruit a lot of um, mm -hmm. faculty. And I'll, I'll tell you one other story about seminaries. <laughs> I have a whole book. I wish, you know, I'm not going to write a book about seminaries, but one could. Sounds um, like you should. The, um, at the um, Southeastern Baptist Seminary, the one in Kentucky, there was in the 1970s and 1980s, a guy named John Johnson who taught there. And he was a white South African Baptist theologian who had been really involved in anti-apartheid work in South Africa. So Baptists internationally don't have the same universally conservative politics that Southern Baptists tend to today. And even Southern mm -hmm. Baptists didn't have as much conservative politics in the 70s before the conservative uh, takeover, and they were a more moderate uh, group in general. But this guy, John Johnson, is at, at, um, the, at the Southeastern Seminary, and he organizes a group of left and liberal Southern Baptists to hold a meeting to try to convince the Southern Baptist Convention to divest their pension funds from um, South Africa in the mid 1980s. Mm -hmm. And they are so out, a small group, they're so outspoken. It includes a black Southern Baptist minister, a bunch of other um, people from the, uh, what was then called the Christian Life Commission, which is now the Religious and Ethics and Public Policy Organization in the Southern Baptist Convention. And they, 
they were preaching, preaching to each other, preaching to the other Southern Baptists, like we need to divest, this is ungodly, it is, uh, you know, it's devil's work, apartheid, and yeah. you know, they did all, like they, they, were, they were preaching evangelical preaching, but against apartheid, and trying, I mean, it's kind of, I think the idea that Southern Baptists were being asked by their parts of their own institution to divest from South Africa in 1985 is pretty unusual. People don't know that, how deeply things were debated, how seriously they were debated at certain points. And I think seminary played a role in that. This guy was here, he was teaching at a seminary, and he found some like-minded people and tried to push things. Mm. So did they end up divesting of South of in the South oh, no. African system? No, they of course not. not. <laughs> Silly question. Even, it, it took the Methodists a long time too. And you know, it was actually, you know, it was a tough, it was a tough road to hope. I know the Southern Baptists never came close. Oh, but course, still, yeah. people were, I know it was a debate. The Southern Baptists aren't looking too good right now, particularly in light of this report that's just dropped of okay. hundreds of sexual abuse, known sexual abuse predators within their church system that they covered up. And, you know, uh, that's a whole nother discussion as well. When we return from the break with the discussion with Dr. Melanie McAllister, we're going to get into a whole lot of other topics. I wanted to ask her some more questions about, she talks a lot in her book about what's going on in Africa. We're also going to be talking about something that I can well remember from my Bible college days. Maybe you have remembrance of this as well if you were around evangelicals maybe 10, 15 years ago. The 1040 window, the unreached people groups. We're also going to talk about the Islamic nations. How come the impact of evangelicalism hasn't done so well in Muslim nations? And then I want to ask her, as we conclude, I want to ask her opinion about dominion theology. How does all this global evangelicalism, or what she calls Christian internationalism, how does it relate to dominion theology? This is something, of course, that I've done a tremendous amount of study and research on and so there's a lot we have to cover. And I like what she says. As I mentioned, it's not just Christian nationalism. It's actually Christian internationalism. This is the global perspective of evangelicalism today. It's far from just an American phenomenon. It's something that we have to watch out for all over the world, literally. But before we get back into the chat with Melanie, I wanted to mention here just quickly what's coming up here in the next few episodes on Mindshift Podcast. I've got some just fantastic episodes sitting in the bank. The next one that's going to come up is with Mike Rothschild. He's written a book called The Storm is Upon Us, and it's a deep dive into the QAnon conspiracy theory. Now, you might think that QAnon's gone away. The last thing we kind of saw about it was the January 6th insurrection, all the nonsense that went around with the Trump era. But it has not gone away by any stretch of the imagination. We've seen that a vast majority of Republicans and evangelicals alike still believe in the basic tenets of QAnon, even though it's not as active as it was during the Trump era. So we're going to get into the conspiracy theory of QAnon with Mike Rothschild. Then I had a good conversation with Mike Phillips. You might know him from Twitter, at SackWriter. Mike is a therapist out of California. He's got just an unbelievable story. We had a lot in common both of us come out of pastoring evangelical churches, although he went in a different route than I did. So look for that conversation coming out after the one with Mike Rothschild. Then I've had a couple of other conversations. I caught up just the other day with my good friend Dean Crossetz. He used to host the podcast, The People I Meet. And he's not doing that anymore, but he's doing a lot of different things, doing writing poetry, and that's part of his reconstruction journey after leaving really charismatic Christianity several years ago. So that's an interesting conversation coming up with Dean. And then finally, I had a really, really good conversation with Carrie Noble. Now, I got turned on to him through a friend of mine, mutual friend, I should say, Casey from the Cult Vault podcast. She turned me on to him, and I got a hold of Carrie. Man, what a conversation. This guy used to be a part of, I guess you could say, a racist, white supremacist, group out of Arkansas back in the 70s and 80s called the Covenant Sword and Arm of the Lord, the CSA, and he got involved in all kinds of stuff, guns, and uh, just let you tell him tell you his story. It's just an unbelievable story, and now he's speaking out. He's helping people get out of that movement, and of course, this is something, just like QAnon, hasn't gone away by any stretch. If you've been watching the news out of the United States just the other day, they arrested a group called the Patriot Front up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. They were trying to disrupt a pride rally up there. And so these nationalists, these militaristic groups, 
They've certainly not gone away, and in fact, they've merged more and more with the Christian right. So this is something we're seeing, and like I said, this is something that Kerry is really an expert on, and he's helping to educate people to get out of that movement. So he had a lot to say, just a fascinating story. So I think you're going to enjoy that conversation with Kerry. Now, I wanted to mention a couple of things before we get back into the chat with Dr. McAllister. If you want to support this show on Patreon, that is greatly supported. It helps me cover my monthly expenses. As always, the links to that are in the show notes. You can become a part of our closed MindShift Podcast Facebook group and get access to the really good MindShift Zoom calls that we have once a month. We're taking a break now for the summer, but we are resuming those again in September. I think I'm working on having maybe Carrie come back in in September. So looking forward to reconnecting with him as well as some of the other previous guests that we've had. It's a great way to meet some of these people. We just had Jen Senko come on at the end of June and I'm going to be putting that call up on the Mindship Podcast Facebook page. It was a really good conversation with Jen seeing her 102 year old mom wandering into the room on the call several times was quite funny but you know moms are what they are you know so it was good to see her as well and obviously she's a big part of the story of the book and the movie The Brainwashing of My Dad so that was really funny to see her mom wandering in on that call but anyway let's get on back to this conversation with Dr. Melon McAllister. I was going to say two really quickly. I forgot to ask her what her Twitter handle was. How do you find her on social media? So I'll just mention it now. You can find her on Twitter at MelanieMCA. So that's where you can find her on social media. You can also follow me on Twitter at MindShift2018. Look up the public MindShift podcast Facebook page if you want to see that video with Jen Senko from last month's MindShift Zoom call. So let's get on back into this chat with Dr. Melanie McAllister as we look at Thy Kingdom Come, exploring Christian internationalism. One of the things I was thinking too, talking about Africa, the impact of certainly Christian media and as well as just mainstream American media, because one thing we learned from the Kenyans, they said that, first of all, just watching American television shows, they're, they're thinking everyone in America is rich. All I have to do is just get there and I'll be handed money as I step off the plane. I mean, it's just like, here, <laughs> we're so rich here, have thousands of dollars. Right. And then the the sort of health and wealth gospel, the big preachers on, on American television, they get played obviously all over uh, different channels in in Africa, and so their theology is very much informed by it's like, it's a weird mix of like charismatic fundamentalist, and yet it's a Western sort of theology. Because I used to teach over here for about eight years. I taught up in Leeds and Liverpool, and at Leeds I taught at this Bible college. All the students were from Africa. They were mostly from Eritrea, Ethiopia, Zambia, places like that, and their theology was so strange in the sense that it was a it was charismatic, but yet it was very fundamentalist, and it was very much a Western British American theology that they were bringing back over here to the UK. Uh, you know, that's interesting. It, it's really it's a, a subject that's pretty debate, debated among scholars, like how indigenous can we think about the prosperity theology in Africa? You know, or, or you know, how far back does something have to be be in you know infused before people can actually say that actually no this is our theology it's not something we got handed by Americans and so you think for example like uh, there's a, a West African theologian named uh, Agu Kalu who who died a few years ago who argues that Pentecostalism emerged simultaneously in the U.S. and in Africa that it comes from African traditional religion and other kinds of cultural sensibilities in Africa that makes sense Pentecostalism the inhabitation of spirits the gifts of the spirit make so much sense in African cultural life that he doesn't want to, he's a Pentecostal and he doesn't want to say this is an, a, you know, an American import. But even if you want to say it was, and I would say you could say it's a British import in uh, East Africa with all the you know, Anglican evangelical oriented Anglican missionaries uh, in uh, East Africa in the, in the 1920s and 30s. What happens in Africa, what happens in East Africa in the, starting in the 30s is the East African revival, which is this major, you know, from the grassroots up revival that is rolls across East Africa for 25 years and is quite 
um, fundamentalist in its politics, but it also has people, you know, speaking uh, in tongues, you know, having um, various kind of charismatic and even Pentecostal components to it. But mostly it's about speaking out against sin and holiness behavior. But it is a major, I mean, uh, who's ever heard of a 25-year revival? But it was, it was, you know, crossing, you know, from one country to another. And it reshaped um, East African evangelicalism really fundamentally. And so you could say, well, this is something they just imported from the British in 1920, but if it's 1950 and people are still like doing their own thing with this, with British missionaries and American missionaries around, but really being led uh, in part by very important groups of uh, Ugandan and Kenyan and other evangelical leaders there, I think that uh, often for, and I want to say this, for, for people who are a little more religious, evangelical or Christian, but sort of more liberal minded, it can be more comfortable to say that things like uh, Pentecostalism and the prosperity gospel are American imports because then Americans are kind of the bad guys sending the bad theology to uh, Africa and Asia and elsewhere. But I think we have to see the ways that people there have really taken it up and made it their own. And so that now some of the most important prosperity churches, the largest prosperity church in the world is in Nigeria. And, you know, yes, in some ways he sounds just like he'd been watching TVN for the last 20 years, which he probably had been. On the other hand, he hasn't, you know, there are African preachers with their own shows on TVN now. So, he could, you know, the, the style is, is American in many ways. And when I went to church in Nigeria a few years ago, it felt a lot like going to an American church in many ways. But at the same time, it was a style of preaching that people um, experience as their own, right? And, and it is indigenized in various ways and is, is is authentic if you can call it that and now what we're seeing is is this thing called reverse missions which is what i was a part of up in leeds because what you've got is generations of africans for example who were you know exposed to that sort of white western theology then they're coming over to the uk back to america or i should say back but they're coming to america to evangelize because they think we're going downhill so far, so fast. We need to have missionaries over here. That's what they're saying. We, we've been saturated with the gospel. Now, I know another thing you talk about in your book, you talk about Asia, because that's the other big piece of the puzzle. It's not just Africa. Some of the largest churches in the world are in Asia. I mean, look at South Korea, South Africa, South America. I mean, they're not in Asia, but Pentecostalism is the fastest growing you know, religion in the world. Yep. by far. What about the Asian story? Because we can't separate that from the colonialist piece either too, can we? No, I mean, again, you have the history of colonialism and uh, in, in its relationship to missionary work in Asia and elsewhere. Of course, missions got kicked out of China, so that's kind of a different history. But I think what you see, and actually there's a, a scholar who's at Emory named Helen Kim, who has this great book coming out this summer on um, the relationship between American foreign policy and missionary um, experiences in, in Korea and the ways in which uh, the U.S. war in Korea in the 1950s laid the groundwork for what we now see as Korea as one of the most evangelical countries, certainly the, probably the most evangelical country in Asia and Korean Americans as a huge important part of the U.S. evangelical community, Koreans at least the last time I checked, Koreans were the second largest missionary sending country in the world after the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, South Korea is a much smaller country than the U.S. So as a, as a per capita thing, it's, it's massive. quite impressive. And so those countries, again, they were you, definitely Korean evangelicalism was shaped by American power, shaped by the U.S. presence, the U.S. military presence, U.S. money and the long, long, you know, never ended Korean war. But now we also see, as you said, the one of the largest churches in the world is in South Korea, and South Koreans are um, a huge global presence. And a, and a big important part, again, like I said, of American evangelical Christianity. So if you look at InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, which you, if you grew up in the in the uh, 70s, you're probably familiar mm -hmm. with, and it's a huge organization oh, yeah. in evangelical history, um, is today about 25% Asian American. And uh, recently just elected their first Asian American president and um, is an organization where Asian Americans have made an incredible mark. And so 
the, and there are, there are places where almost every member of a university at certain schools is, is Asian American. It's like an Asian American club and other places where it's, it's different. But so again, we see this global flow, right? It doesn't just flow out from the U.S. Um, people, come, you know, there's a flow back into the U.S. and each um, group of evangelicals affecting each other, meeting at international conferences, having conversations where they have an impact on each other. And um, of course, things like short-term missions and travel and people coming and going into Bible schools and seminaries means that there is a, a, a community that is pretty, I mean, I don't want to say pretty international in, in terms of every single person, because a lot of people are still going to their churches and have never left home or are never going to know anybody outside, you know, mm-hmm. the county they grew up in, but a community that where there's a lot of flow and a lot of back and forth. And so thinking about that, I think helps us think about uh, evangelicalism as a, as a, as a religion that as American evangelicals, as a component of a larger global evangelical faith mm-hmm. and as a minority in that faith, right? Mm-hmm. American evangelicals are not the majority of evangelicals in the world. The majority of evangelicals in the world are in Africa and Asia and Latin America. Yes, is that the famous 1040 window? I mean, I think you've talked about that in your maybe your article or your book that I can remember when I was at Bible College, which is interesting. You mentioned Dallas Seminary. The Bible College that I went to in Portland was founded by all Dallas Seminary graduates back in the 1950s. So that was an extension in many ways of that really fundamentalist theology, I think, as you say, as Dallas, you know, and they were huge on missions. You know, I can remember they had, they had every autumn term, they would close the the campus for an entire week and they would have speakers come in, missionaries. And it was all about pushing us to get involved in global missions. You know, we had all these, these speakers talking about, this is really where you should be at is, is foreign missions. You should be taking the gospel worldwide, the 1040 window, that was a huge thing back in the day. Is that still a thing? It must be. No, no, it's not. It, oh, it, it isn't. Funny, not it, 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 not really anymore. People don't talk about it much. I mean, the, there's a legacy of it, which I'll tell you about. But 1040 window for your for your listeners is the area between 10 and 40 degrees latitude that um, is, you know, if you sort of draw a window across North Africa and the Middle East and parts of Asia between those two uh, spaces on the map, you have a window where most of the population is Muslim, Buddhist, or Hindu. And in 1989, again, the end of the Cold War is crucial here. The evangelist named Louise Bush declares that in uh, he's at the, at the 1989 uh, Lausanne Convention, which was in Manila, um, declares that the, the focus of our, our missionary work needs to be in this window, in the 1040 window, where we can help people who are enslaved by Islam, Hinduism, and, and Buddhism, but particularly Islam, right? Um, and it has this kind of millennial urgency about it, you know, the end of the Cold War leads to a focus on that, uh, that area, but also it's the, the millennium is coming up and let's like, we're going to have to convert the world by the year 2000 because who knows what's going to happen in the year 2000. And it, and it becomes, it's everywhere. It's mugs, it's uh, uh, t-shirts, it's maps that you Books. can have, prayer maps yeah. at school. You can have things to move your mouse around on mouse pads with <laughs> mouse. a window on it. And, um, it, and it's, it's, a, it's a kind of fad for quite a few years, maybe 10 or 15 years, but connected to that. And the thing that lasts longer is the idea of unreached people groups, that this is an area where there are a lot of people who've never heard the gospel or su- supposedly have never heard the gospel. So again, there are these kind of, it would be kind of inside baseball to talk about the debates among missionaries about what's the best way to do missions. But one, one argument was that you shouldn't go preaching in Mexico City to people who've had a chance to hear the gospel when people in other parts of the world have never had a chance. Let's focus on those who are unreached. And this idea of unreached people groups, um, which was separate from the pin 40 window, but got kind of folded into it, was really a major framework for a lot of people for a while. And to this day, it organizes the Southern Baptist Convention International Missions Board programs. So the idea is we focus on people who've never heard the gospel, not on big cities where people have had a chance before or places that have been that may not have very many uh, Christians in them, but could have those people just had their hearts hardened or whatever. And so um, they've had their chance in a way. Yeah, they've had their chance. So so, um, that that was uh, a big way of organizing missions after 1989. One thing you mentioned in the book, you talk about the missionary movement has had very little success in Islamic countries. 
So huge success in parts of Asia. But then when it comes to Muslim dominated countries, there seems to be very little sort of fruit being born, as they would say, you know, in terms of their evangelistic zeal going into these places. Why haven't they made more inroads into Islamic countries? Well, you know, I would say my guess about this is that when you talk to Muslims about Jesus, the whole way that I mean, this is an this is an overstatement, but I would say the way mm-hmm. that missionaries are set up to learn to uh, evangelize people, they they're supposed to learn the local culture. They're supposed to be sophisticated about that. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. But they're supposed to know where they are. But this the kind of orientation is: let me tell you something you might not know, like how to get to heaven. Here's what Jesus asked of you. This is who Jesus is. You can have a personal relationship. Right? It's all like a story that you're supposed to not know about in some sense, or that you didn't really realize. But Muslims have a theory of Jesus already built into their faith, right? That's they know true. Jesus is. He's in the um, Quran. Yeah. yeah. He's in the Quran. He's highly esteemed. Bless his holy name. He's a prophet. Yeah, he's we, a know, prophet. we know we, we know about Jesus. Right. It's not a story. It's not a new story. So what you're asking us is not to hear about Jesus, but to revise our story about Jesus. Mm. And so it's a different kind of project and it's, it's much harder, I think. I think a lot of times the experience of people missionizing to Muslims is sort of like, you know, thank you, we love Jesus too, um, you know. And yeah, what's the problem? <laughs> right. And, you know, of course, Muslims have a critique of Christianity, which I think is uh, hard, I mean, for at least very religious people, pretty heartfelt and pretty deep, which is that they see uh, Christianity as, um, as uh, polytheistic, essentially that the Trinity just doesn't make sense. Like there's one God and there's not three and one or three different ones that people pray to sometimes to Jesus and sometimes to God and sometimes the Holy Spirit. Like that's, doesn't, that's, that's polytheism. We are a monotheism. We play only to God. Everybody else is. Yeah. We have Allah and that's it. And which is a name for God, right? It's not, it's not a separate God. We pray to God and then everybody else is inferior and, and serves God's interests, but not, you know, pray to them. And so, um, I think that it's a it's a it's a tough call for for evangelizing Muslims in general. Of course, there's been places of conversion, and there are real reasons why people might convert. Again, a lot of times people choose their faith for reasons that are not just about intellectual or spiritual um, orientation. They might find themselves, uh, for example, being a minority in a community which is uh, predominantly Muslim, and there might be an ethnic minority which would find. Christian identity to be uh, more uh, amenable than you would somewhere else. You know, people might be actually convicted, you know, all sorts of conversions do happen. But what you see, I think, across Africa, too, in places where Muslims and Christians are, you know, large amounts of people are Muslim and Christian in, in the country, like in Sudan or in Nigeria, is that the, the relative rates have stayed the same. It's really just natural increase. You know, mm-hmm. somebody will convert from Islam to Christianity and somebody will convert from Christianity to Islam, but by and large, people stay in the religion of their parents. And, right. You get one, we trade one back, and that's yeah. <laughs> the numbers all even out. Well, my last question is, in all your research and writing on global evangelicalism, did you come across any iterations or streams of dominion theology? Because that's what I've done a lot of research and writing on is how a lot of this seems to be powered or driven by a belief in that Christians need to take dominion over the world. And there's a lot of iterations. It's not like evangelical. It's not a monolith, is it? But surely a lot of the mission movement and the zeal behind even education and training of leaders for key positions of power must relate in some way to the story of global evangelicalism. Well, I think that what you're saying is really important because I, my feeling about this is that, that there are a few people who really have this dominion theology worked out and who are really arguing that we need to have control of the state in various ways. But that what's happened is kind of like charismatic practice. It's seeped into all sorts of thinking, even when people don't necessarily sign on to the whole package. And so it used to be that the idea that, I mean, you know, I grew up as a Southern Baptist too, and that the idea that Baptists would think that they needed to control the state would be, you know, uh, would be unheard of. Like the Baptists don't like the state. The state is, you know, mm-hmm. dangerous. It might try to enforce its religion on you or something like that. And so the idea that evangelicals should try to capture state power was pretty, it's a pretty minority idea. 
But what has happened is I think as the society has become more liberal in various ways, including more accepting of uh, LGBT rights, including you know, when abortion got legalized, including around racial politics, although I think that's often overstated that a lot that many evangelicals, even very conservative ones, at least nominally would believe in a multiracial faith and a multiracial religion. But still discomfort at the, the kind of liberalization and multiracial nature of the society, that all of that leads people to be like, well, maybe we need the state to protect our interests more. And so even people who don't think full out dominion theology, what we require is for the church to capture the state in order for the kingdom of God to be instantiated. I think there is a much more loose sympathy for the idea of Christian, uh, of evangelicals making uh, a grab for different kinds of power, school boards, you know, senators, you know, for for having that power um, in place has has become um, a loose common sense among evangelicals in a way that it really was not 30 or 40 years ago. In Mm -hmm. fact, it would have been uh, abhorrent to many people. And now as they feel less in control of the society, they are more interested in having control of the state. At the very least, having Christians in charge of key leadership positions, you know, they could say, well, we're, we're just trying to Christianize this public school. You know, we're just putting Christians on, on the school board and having Christian teachers and Christian principals and things like that. That's just a simple thing. But yet it's, it's a step in that direction. And I think certainly the language of Seven Mountains Dominion Theology Someone said to me the other day, Peter Montgomery of the Right Wing Watch, he said that it's become the lingua franca of the sort of evangelical movement. People are using that language, even though they don't buy into all the, like you said, the actual theology. They, they haven't read R.J. Rushduni, Christian Reconstructionism. They don't even know who he, he was, you know, but yet the talking points have filtered through. And I think you alluded to that as well. Something that Jeff Charlotte obviously picked up in the family was that these groups Dominionist groups like the Family, the Fellowship Foundation, and others, they have made inroads in, into global politics. So they're very much working an agenda that a lot of people don't know anything about. Right. And so they're behind the National Prayer Breakfast, which seems mm-hmm. very ecumenical, but which uh, definitely has this backer that has a very specific kind of Dominionist nationalist ideology. It's true. And that's something we definitely need to watch out for going forward. We're getting close to an hour. Thank you so much. I'm mindful of your time. I know you've got things to do. Thank you so much though, Dr. Melanie McAllister. This has been really an enlightening conversation. It's kind of giving us that global perspective on not just American evangelicalism, but the Christian internationalism of of global evangelicalism. Really a pleasure to talk to you. Yes, we'll keep in touch. Thank you again, and we'll see you soon. Okay, take care.